this is Mike Lindstedt, president and co-founder of the Nehemiah Project, and you are listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast, where we replace hopelessness with hope. Well, we're back, and we have a couple of guests in the room today, guests that are returnees to the podcast. We got Mr. Bo Whitmore and Mr. Sam Serencioni. Guys, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing just fine, Mike. Great to be with you again today. Yes, sir. What's going on? And so we've got the Field Church staff in the building right now. And that's because the Nehemiah Project staff is in California, my home state. And I am uh, fighting a little bit of jealousy. Because I talked to I talked to Chad and he said the weather's beautiful and mm. they were eating In and Out Burger when I was talking to him. So yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit kind of bummed. That's the only reason and, Chad went there. And let's <laughs> let's not forget the main In and Out Burger here in Pastor MacArthur yesterday. Yeah, they got live. to go there. That was yeah. good. Yeah. So the Nehemiah Project staff is in California because there is the annual ACBC conference going on right now, and um, I didn't go this year. But um, man, last, last year's was really good. The one that was up in Memphis, I benefited a lot from that. I know mm. our staff did too. So I'm excited to see what the Lord does uh, in our staff and um, in the hearts of them and what they bring back. I'm really excited to see how the Lord's gonna grow the Nehemiah Project ministry. But I'm so grateful that, um, man, when they're gone, I could just pull in some, some heavy hitters and we can just take care of business here on this podcast. <laughs> and so we're gonna be following up with the theme of our last podcast. And I wanna quote uh, Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, to start today's podcast off again. Thomas Watson said this, quote, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart, mm. end quote. Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. And Sam, you preached a phenomenal sermon yesterday, and I'm, I'm so grateful um, for that. And you were preaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and you were going over just the series of exhortations there um, at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But I wanted to focus on the 14th verse because that really does sum up what we're, what we're going to be talking about today. Would you go ahead and read that for us, Sam? says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Yes. And so we are going to unpack this verse, right? Admonish the idle or the unruly is another translation of that word. Um, and so we're going to be unpacking that. We're going to talk about how to encourage the faint-hearted, how to help the weak, and how to be patient with everyone in the congregation, mm-hmm. right? And we're gonna, we're gonna bring it down to a, a counseling context as well. But the context here, as you told us yesterday, is referring to people in the church, mm-hmm. right? Mm. This is not a mercy ministry verse per se. This right. is within the congregation. Yeah, this is how the church is to deal with the church. So he is, he is urging the brothers or the the believers, the brothers and sisters, the children of God in the congregation to deal with one another mm-hmm. in the congregation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason why this connects so well to that quote that I just read from Thomas Watson is discontentedness, what we talked about last week, stems out of a heart that is really rebellious, mm-hmm. as we're going to see in our, in our narrative today in Numbers. Uh, rebellion is at the core of the sinful heart, right? It may not start out as manifestly rebellious in the absolute sense that we're gonna see today in our text, but it's in the little things. Mm-hmm. It's in the secret displeasure of the heart, mm-hmm. right? It's in the thinking, well, I'm just not gonna do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or, no, I think this way is better, right? Mm-hmm. So we're gonna unpack all that stuff but I also want to make sure that we focus on the faint heart of the weak and, and the patient elements there as well. For pastors, for people who are biblical counselors, this is a, a, really a biblical counseling verse, right? Um, admonish, right? Um, nutheteo, where we, used to, where we got the phrase nuthetic counseling. And so this is definitely something for everyone in the congregation. Mm. And so, um, Bo, before we, before we get into our supportive text at 1 Corinthians 10, do you have anything you want to add to this before we move on? No, I think, um, I think you covered it pretty well, Mike. I think um, we just 
what you're getting at there is really the definition of sin. I mean, what is sin? Mm-hmm. It's it's a rebellion against God. I mean, it started with Adam, um, you know, in the first sin, him and Eve, and and that's really the core of what the definition of sin is. It's rebellion yeah. against God. Yes, indeed it is. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to look at some of the fruit from this deeper root issue. And uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 is what we're going to be looking at. And I'll just read it. And then, Sam, I'd like for you to kind of just make some observations, if you will, Sam and Bo. But let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and stood up to play. Nor let us act in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 died in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example And they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So, Pastor Sam, Mm -hmm. some observations there. There's certainly a lot that we could say about this section here. Yeah, I mean, it is so full. Um, You had a people who were being led by God. So God was leading them. Uh, We know that they had the the cloud uh, during the day, um, the pillar of fire at night. Uh, God was leading them. He took them through the sea, the Red Sea. And um, and the Lord was providing for them both physically and spiritually. Mm. And... um, and so Christ, it says, was with them. Uh, that's an amazing statement to think about, but uh, the same Christ that would come to earth in the New Testament, the, the Lord of all, he was with them providing for all of their needs. Mm. And, and so, but it says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, mm-hmm. uh, for they were thrown in the wilderness. And so uh, they were, God was not pleased with them uh, because of, of their sin. And it says they were even in verse two, baptized into Moses, meaning that they had a great leader mm-hmm. uh, who, was, who was with them and they were under his care. And so then, um, and so then as we look at this, you know, all of the sin in which they were were part of, it was written down for us. It says, mm-hmm. now these things took place as an example that we may not desire evil things. And so the reason why God recorded the narrative of the Israelites in the wilderness, disobeying God and being punished for it, was for New Testament believers' example, mm-hmm. so that we can learn from it and not be like them. Mm-hmm. Very practical. Um, and so then what are the things that we learn? Well, don't be idolaters, as they were, mm-hmm. verse 7. Don't indulge in sexual immorality, verse 8. Verse 9, don't put Christ to the test. Verse 10, nor grumble as they did, and they were destroyed because of it. Mm-hmm. And so again, in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction. Yes. And, and so it says in verse 12, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. And to basically 
uh, avoid and uh, fight against temptation. And so, and so what really this speaks to is the fact that, you know, they were, Christ was with them, mm-hmm. just like Christ is with us as believers. And they were destroyed by God because of their sin, particularly what we're talking about, the grumbling aspect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God destroyed them, took them out of the midst of his people, in a sense, uh, whether or not, um, you know, he's referring to all at once when they were just taken out of the congregation or the fact that he destroyed mostly all of them. I mean, only two people entered the promised land. Yeah. Moses, I mean, uh, Joshua and Caleb. Out of the 13 spies. Only yeah. two of them. And so, and so the fact that Christ was with them, they grumbled. God was angry, not pleased with them, destroyed them, even though he had a great leader. And what he's saying is, this is for our example, meaning mm-hmm. Christ is with us. And we should not think that he takes that grumbling any less serious mm-hmm. because look at the consequences that befell on them because of that. And so, again, as I said yesterday, we wouldn't commit sexual immorality just flippantly. Mm-hmm. So why do we walk around as New Testament believers grumbling, mm-hmm. thinking that that or gossiping or, or being discontent with what God's given us and think that that is okay. Right, right. I mean, I just want to bring up Romans 15, and then, Bo, I'd like to hear some of your observations. But Romans 15, 4, again, reiterates the fact that Paul thought very highly of the Old Testament. He didn't see it as um, not relating to this New Testament people that God is forming for himself at all. He says in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction Mm -hmm. so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What an incredible passage, right? So the Old Testament is there for a a number of reasons, but in particular, one of those reasons is so we may learn from the example of other people. I had a a professor say the Old Testament is, how do New Testament believers use it? Well, number one, it's for evangelism because it clarifies Christ and the Mm -hmm. gospel. Number two, it's for example, because we learn real great principles for life. Mm-hmm. Number three, it's used in a way of encouragement, because that's what the scripture says. It, it's used for our encouragement, for instance, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then, um, and it's used for our exhortation, meaning telling us what to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so, anyway. It's, uh, yeah, it, this, this should, the Old Testament should serve as an example for us. In so, that Bo, way. what are some things that, that you see there? What are some comments you'd like to make on that 1 Corinthians 10 passage? Yeah, so um, I think that Sam obviously did an excellent job covering it. Um, so what I'm locking on to kind of in my mind right now is the, um, the grumbling in verse 10. Um, and what's coming to mind is, you know, how what's, in our heart comes mm. out of our mouth often. Yeah. And I think that's the main problem that we see with, with the act of grumbling is, is, you know, it's just speech that's coming out of our mouth, but it's, it's really telling what is in our heart mm. when we grumble, especially when we grumble about the circumstances that the Lord has brought us to. Um, you know, it shows a lack of, of trust in what he's doing in our lives. Um, but yeah, grumbling is just just really the manifestation of discontentment in our hearts. Yeah, so. yeah, that's a good observation because we do take it really kind of like it's not that big of a deal, you know? Mm. Like it's so amazing to me when, you, when I started to focus on the words that were coming out of my mouth mm-hmm. after the last year's ACBC conference, mm. there was a guy who preached James 3 and it just was so <laughs> convicting. It was so amazing to me, like, how much wasted speech and how much speech that was coming out of my mouth that did not glorify God. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. The tongue really is the smallest, one of mm-hmm. the smallest members of the body. and mm-hmm. it, it could set, it's like hell comes out of it, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, James 3 talks about that. And uh, it's really incredible how easily speech just flows out of our mouth that doesn't glorify God, isn't seasoned with salt, doesn't edify others. 
And that's all sin. Mm-hmm. That's sin that God takes very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go to Hebrews 3. Verses Before you, can I comment ahead. on what yeah, you just absolutely. said too? Absolutely. I think that's a good just uh, last kind of word in this section um, when you said, Mike, going to the ACBC conference, realizing that, and then even probably obviously making some changes in your life. Because we as leaders, we need to take heed to the word ourselves, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Uh, Richard Baxter in that, in that uh, passage, uh, I think someone reminded me of it recently in the um, Reformed Pastor, the book of the Reformed Pastor, mm-hmm. makes it very clear, right, that the pastors need to take heed to the, to the word that they're you know, preaching. But uh, I think going back to chapter 9, at the end, uh, Paul takes this responsibility on himself as well. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, right before the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at the end there, starting in verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain, uh, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So here's what Paul says about himself. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, mm-hmm. lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And then chapter four, uh, chapter 10, starting in verse one, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And then he goes into the sin of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's very clear that what Paul is saying in context is that he is disciplining himself to not partake in the same sins in which we just discussed in chapter 10 that Israel committed. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess the, the application there is um, when you think about even specifically this grumbling aspect, we have to really put forth effort to discipline our lives so that we don't follow the example mm-hmm. of Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the James 3 passage uh, that speaks to the tongue, verse 6 in particular, it says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our existence and is set on fire by hell. Uh, Wow. Mm. Verse 8 says, But no one can tame the tongue. He was just kind of talking about, in verse 7, some a- how animals can be tamed, but nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so, right? Now, just because he says no one can tame it doesn't mean <laughs> that we should not attempt to in the power of the Spirit right. of God does not mean that we, oh, whatever, mm. right? Let's mm. just let it fly. Mm. Going to Hebrews 3, before we get into our narrative section, I, I want to just use the warning against unbelief here because it directly applies to the numbers text that we're going to go to. And this would be the extreme example, right? If we, to, if we were to look at the congregation, the church today, Right? This, this would be the worst possible reality, that our grumbling, our um, idolatry, our sexual immorality, the things that Paul lists out in 1 Corinthians 10, the things that drive people into biblical counseling rooms to get help, right? Um, the worst possible reality could be that we actually don't believe in mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews doesn't hesitate to say, numerous times throughout the book. Mm -hmm. And I'll read verses 12 through 19 in chapter three. It says this, see to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? 
Was it not with those who sinned and whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Hmm. Wow. Uh, that, that's the worst possible thing that could happen. Hmm. Now, let's go to where the writer of Hebrews is referring us to. Let's go to Numbers chapter 13. We'll start there. And we're going to look at chapters 13 through chapter 14, just making comments and skipping to certain portions of these two chapters. But this really is our narrative. This really is our narrative for what we see just plainly spelled out in the epistles. And so in Numbers chapter 13, you have the Israelites who have come out of Egypt, been delivered by Yahweh from their slavery to Pharaoh, and they are standing they're, they're at the precipice of the, of the land of Canaan. They've sent spies into the land of Canaan. The spies were there for 40 days, it says in verse 25, and they return from spying out the land. And they come to the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they basically give a report about what they've seen. And they said this, starting in verse 27, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and are very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And I'll stop right there before I move on because Caleb tries to reassure the people. But I want to bring up a couple of things and then hear from you guys uh, some observations. Notice in verse 27, the words, it certainly does flow with, and he goes on to say milk and honey, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The reason why he says it certainly does in the LSB translation is because that's what God promised them. <laughs> that's, what he, that's what God told them it was gonna be like before they ever got there, back in Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33. And then furthermore, in, in verse 29, they make mention of Amalek living in the land. Now, Amalek is, are some of the most ancient enemies of Israel, but in Exodus 17, verses 14 through 16, the Lord promises that he's going to wipe those people out. And that's because they, they took advantage of the people of Israel as they were leaving the land of Egypt. And, and so the, the reason why that's important is because they are mentioning two things in particular that God has already assured them they don't have to worry about, right? Mm. So they have the promises of God. They even validate those promises. They affirm them. But like Hebrews 3 said, there might be some unbelief in there. Mm. What do you guys say? I mean, about what you just said or about all of this? About, uh, but just go. I, I mean, <laughs> this, this is just unbelievable. And it, it just, I mean, it's believable because it's true. But I mean, it's, there's so much instruction here. It is, I mean, what you just articulated, Mike, uh, about trusting what God had already promised. And then at the same time, you look at this situation and you say, okay, so this is what they realize. And Caleb in verse 30, being a great leader and one who's trusting the Lord, quiets the people and says, let's go up and occupy it. Mm-hmm. We can overcome it. The Lord already promised. Mm-hmm. He's with us, you know? And yet there's a few who say, no, we can't. It's too hard. It's, they're, they're too big. We can't trust God. We're scared. So now they're grumbling, but look what the result is. So instead of of trusting the Lord and listening to Caleb, they they come back and tell Israel their report. Mm -hmm. And then what happens to Israel, chapter 14? All the congregation now cries out, doesn't trust God, and grumbles against Moses and Aaron. I mean... It was like a spark getting dropped onto a gasoline-soaked pile of hay. But look at what happens when you have a few grumblers, a few of those who are unruly, not trusting the Lord, 
you got a leader in Caleb who's trying really hard to help them trust the Lord and see the truth and bank on the promises of God and his word. And then look what the result is that the rest of the congregation hear the grumblers. They stop trusting God. It infects everybody. And now everybody's grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Mm-hmm. Like they could do anything about right. it. They're just right. trusting the Lord and trying to do what's right. Yeah, we're going to jump into chapter 14 in a moment. Do you have any observations you want to add? Because I got a few more I'd like to put in here because there's, there's so much, like you said, in this. But go yeah, ahead, Bo. Well, um, you know, for the most part, y'all, y'all stole the wind out of my cells on this. But, you know, it's I okay. mean. It's okay. It's good to repeat yeah, these yeah. things. Uh, just Sam's the, over here. Yeah, he's trying to blow some more wind back, back in. <laughs> but, you know, just acknowledging that, hey, God has indeed been faithful and truthful with us. And, Amen. you know, everything that he said has worked out exactly how he said it was going to. But now that we see how big these people are and how strong they are, mm-hmm. we're going to all of a sudden assume that eh, God is no, no longer telling the truth, that he brought us all the way here just so these people could slaughter us. Right. And, you know, you look back even just with history up to the point of numbers, all of God's promises are happening you know, they're, they're a nation at this point of, um, I don't know how many people, but it all started with, um, with Abraham, mm-hmm. you know, and he promised Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a, a nation out of you. Yeah. And all of these promises up until this point have worked out exactly how God was saying, but now we, we've come to this point, God's made some more promises, and now we're going to start doubting him because right. of the size of the people or how powerful they are. According to Numbers eleven twenty one, there's six hundred thousand Israelites on foot. So probably some babies and women and children, mm-hmm. you know, elderly people, etc. Mm-hmm. But we're talking a ton of people, right? Mm-hmm. And that again, like you mentioned, is a direct result of the Abrahamic covenant, mm-hmm. right? But I want to go back and make a few more observations. Notice in verse thirty one, which we didn't read. So let me read verses thirty through thirty three just to give this portion of the text. It says, "Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said." We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for, for we are surely able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land which we have passed through to spy out on is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So I want to focus on their view of God, which is explicitly stated in verse 31, right? If you have eyes to see, it's obvious that they think their God is an impotent God, right? It says this, but the men who gone up with Caleb say, we are not able to go up against this people for they're too strong for us. So clearly they are seeing themselves as without God or they are seeing the God who is supposedly in their minds with them as less mighty than these people, right? So Ed Welch wrote a great book on it, right? When, when God is small and people are big, or it might be when people are big and God is small, right? But we see it right here. We see it right here. And so the, the way that you, listener, view God matters tremendously to your faith, right? Mm-hmm. If you think that God is not able to do a small thing like this, well, then when soon, as soon as things get difficult, you're going to start to second guess that God that you supposedly believe in, right? When you're, when you're faced with a problem in your marriage and you come in for biblical counseling, when you're faced with the possibility of divorce, and yet you read in the text, it says, he who finds a wife finds favor from the Lord. What do you start to think? Is God able to save your marriage, right? Are you willing to submit your life to him and trust him and, and, and go in and take the promised land, so to speak? Go in and claim the promises of God? I mean, that, that's the type of real life application that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about necessarily going up and fighting giants, Although if you were a military man, you might think that through, right? Mm -hmm. But we're talking about the everyday battle that we have against sin, right? Mm -hmm. And so they have a small view of God, it's clear, from verse 31. And I think that, you know, it it really does speak to the larger issue. When 
things are challenging, they don't go our way, or things confront us, um, whether it be in the church, which is the context of what you and Chad were talking about last time, um, whatever it may be, either like you said, you have a small view of God or uh, you're a functional atheist mm-hmm. where God is now not even part of the equation. So now you look at something that's confronting, that's challenging, that maybe rubs you the wrong way, that you're gonna, is gonna have to sanctify you, it's gonna challenge you, et cetera. And you begin to look at it without involving God in the equation at all. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And, um, and so, you, you know, within the church, you start looking at the situation or, or whatever it might be, and you start thinking, how is this going to work out for me? How am I going to control the, thing, the, the situation? How, how is it going to affect me, et cetera? And, God, and you've now begun to leave God out of the equation at all. Mm-hmm. You know, well, this is what God wants for me. God will work in me. I need to submit and obey him this is his good pleasure and he will help me etc but those things begin to uh, not be in our mind and in our hearts at all and that's what it seems like here is that they just they saw this and god was totally not part of the equation for them anymore right you know and i think i think sam's just like right on it right there when we talk about what's going on in our hearts when we grumble um because what's happening is we're worried about ourselves. That's, that's what the grumbling is. You know, it, it's, it's that we're making ourselves bigger than God. Um, going back to the kind of the, um, when people are big and, and God is small thing, but we're worried about our own comfort, our own desires, you know, and one, so we're not getting them. So that's causing the grumbling to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, in, in a couple more observations here, because I think we tend to have this, idolatrous view of the Christian life in our mind. Mm. You know, more so in Western nations in America where our material needs are likely met. Um, I mean, even, you know, when I was homeless, living under a bridge, I had more property that was in my possession than most people do in third world countries. You know what I mean? Mm. Had a food stamps card, could go get social services, could still go to the doctor. Mm. (laughs) These are basic things that we just take for granted, right? So... Mm. I think it's not a stretch to presume that the American view of Christianity is, you know, generally skewed. If it's not going to be informed by the text of Scripture, mm-hmm. it's absolutely skewed, mm-hmm. right? My point in bringing that up is that as soon as we are led into the promises of God, we're surrounded by the enemy. Mm-hmm. And I get that from this text here, because if you look at uh, the earlier section that I read in verses 26 through 29, Particularly in 29, it says, Amek is living in the land of the Negev, which is a geographical area of the promised land. Then the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites are living in the hill country. There's another geographical area. And the Canaanites are living by the sea. There's another geographical area. And by the side of the Jordan, there's another geographical area. So you have the north, the south, the west, and the east covered by, by the enemies. And God's going to take them directly into that. Mm-hmm. So you're going to go into that following the promises of God, trusting him, and you will be surrounded by sin, by mm-hmm. the enemy, right? Mm-hmm. So here's the New, the New Testament application of that. I get saved all of a sudden in the spiritual realm. I am viewed as a child of God, no longer a follower and, and child of Satan, mm-hmm. right? So I'm in a very real way surrounded by the enemy, Right? So the skewed version of Christianity that thinks that, well, this Christian life is going to be easy, yeah. that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. And then you have leaders who are trying to lead you into that. So now it's all of a sudden you're terrified or you think it's going to be easy. And then you've got those who are, who are pulling you forward. Mm-hmm. And so it's no wonder that then we have a skewed view of them, we grumble against them, and we are wanting something that's just not true of, of Christianity, like mm-hmm. you just said. So unless we have a biblical view of what's, what God is actually going to do in our lives in that way, it's, we're going to be upset. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be grumbling, and we're going to be um, you know, unruly in that way because we're focused on what we want. You mm-hmm. know? So. 
it, as I'm thinking about it, it really is a view of Christianity that robs the glory of God. Yeah. Because mm. <laughs> when God takes you in the midst of this kind of situation, if he doesn't come through, you got no hope. Yeah. But he promises to be with you, yeah. right? So when you, again, you're facing that marriage situation or you're trying to get out of the, the pit of addiction, right? Or you're dealing with suicidal ideation and there's just darkness everywhere in your mind. Remember, if you're a Christian, the Lord is with you right? The Lord is with you. Where do you go to get encouragement? The Old Testament, the New Testament, mm -hmm. and everything in between, right? Mm -hmm. The word of God is unbreakable, and not one word has failed. Now, let's go to Numbers 14 and see this rebellion that is just let loose. It's incredible. Now, I want to make a mention that in verses 1 through 10, you've got the people basically saying, we are done with this Moses guy. Mm. We're over it, right? Verses one through four. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Aaron and Moses. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? And why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Mm. Now, before you guys start launching in with some observations, which is what, what I want, I want to make mention of this. I went through the book of Exodus and Numbers and counted seven examples where this exact phrase, uh, would that we had died, in the land of Egypt, or where all the sons of Israel grumbled were used. So my point in bringing this up is that this is not the first time. Mm -hmm. Now, in verse 22, the Lord himself says that Israel put him to the test 10 times by not listening to his voice and by grumbling. So either my counting was off, which is likely, or this is... Uh, a figure of speech, the, the number 10, meaning that they have maxed out my patience by putting me to the test. Because 10 is the number of fingers we have. And in ancient times, when you gave a tithe, for example, you put both hands in the top of your, your uh, offering heap and you lifted it up to God or the deity. And that was representative of offering the whole. Both hands, all 10 fingers. So either way, um, this is not the first time the Israelites have had this exact issue. Mm -hmm. And notice how it just erupts into total mutiny. Verse mm -hmm. four, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So let's focus on verses one through four and make some observations here. What do you guys see going on in the text? Well, what's coming to mind for me right now, um, and this is kind of, kind of leading us into this text, is just everything that Israel has been through at this point. And you kind of, if you follow the whole narrative of, of the Pentateuch uh, through Deuteronomy, you, you see everything that they, they go through, everything that God leads them through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, they get to the Red Sea and they're trapped between the Egyptian army and the Red Sea. And um, they want to turn their back on God there. Yeah. Um, even in the wilderness, God's feeding them manna that is coming from the sky and what do they say? Oh, I wish I had some meat. Yeah. You know, I mean, God keeps on supplying their needs, keeps on pulling them through. And at the, at the, just the slightest bit of, of, um, resistance, they're ready to like, Hey, let's pack our bags and yeah. go back to Egypt. We'd they're rather bailing. go back to slavery. Yeah. You know, that was way so, better. Mm -hmm. We had no rights at all, but at least we had good food to eat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, that's, that's incredible that the food is always the thing that is appealed to because it really mm -hmm. does point to this, the, the, the physical, fleshly, mm -hmm. sensuous mm -hmm. type of desire, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and just a few principles, I think going back to what you said, Mike, about the 10 fingers, um, you know, mm -hmm. lifting up as much as you possibly could from your heap of, uh, of blessing to the Lord, uh, you can't give anymore. You can't get your arms, your hands around anymore to give to God. Right. It's almost like it's the max. Well, if you think about him saying, you know, the, the 10 times, I mean, th there's now a, a sureness about the destruction that's going to, and the discipline that's going to be yes. taking place because it's reached the limits. And I think there's a principle to apply there. 
you know, going back even to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I mean, Christ is with us and God loves the believer, but there become, there comes a, there's a limit at some point to yes. where the grumbling and the complaining uh, and the heart that doesn't trust God, which is continued to be maybe, you know, reproved and rebuked and exhorted by the, by the leader or by the counselor, there almost mm-hmm. becomes a limit to where, you know, at some point um, it's reached its capacity and there's yeah. now going to be consequences and God's going to take you out of the congregation to preserve the mm-hmm. congregation mm-hmm. Or, or God's going to, uh, you know, even take you out of this world. First John talks about that, mm-hmm. right? Where, uh, where there's a sin that leads to death. Now, whether mm-hmm. that's, you know, uh, speaking of how God kills the believer who continues in sin, mm-hmm. that's a real possibility of interpretation there. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's one principle. Um, I think a principle here too is the fact that when someone is being led to trust God in such a way that they don't want to, that is taking them beyond what they expect of Christianity, mm. which is ease, et cetera. Again, they're going to grumble at the leader who is taking them through that. And I say that to say for even counselors who are listening, yes, if you are taking someone through the path of, uh, of, of addiction and, and trying to see, uh, uh, you know, recovery there and, and healing there. If you're taking a marriage through uh, getting them on the pathway to, to being fruitful and, and, you know, faithful to the Lord rather than the sin that they're living in, you go down the list. If you're a counselor taking them in that direction, it's going to require them to repent of sin and trust in God. Mm-hmm. So when they are doing that, you're going to be the object of their grumbling. Yes. You're going to be the one in which they are upset with because mm-hmm. you're taking them through to a place where they need to fully trust, depend on the Lord when their fears, their flesh, and everything else is crying out that they don't want that. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's, there are a lot of principles yeah. here for us to learn in that way. So. I want to just piggyback on what you just said because maybe some counselor or pastor somewhere, you know, might disagree that that would actually happen. I don't think there would be any that are actually Mm -hmm. in ministry. But, I mean, it's even explicit here in verse 10. Notice, okay, verse 4 said, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. This is total rebellion. Mm. And they're willing to even kill their leaders, which shows the hatred in their heart, right? Because verse 10 says, look at this. After um, Joshua, Caleb, Moses, and Aaron, four faithful leaders, right? Mm. After those four fall on their faces in the presence of the entire congregation and tear their clothes as a sign of mourning, after that happens, they, they, they appeal to God's promises. And verse 10 says, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Mm. They're like, shut up. <laughs> we don't care what the word of God says. Mm. Shut your mouth. We're, we're going to take you out, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now look what happens in the second half of that verse. Then the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. They are about to kill the leaders of Israel of the Israelite people who have now a, their backs up against a wall, helpless and hopeless. They got 600,000 people mm. upset with them. <laughs> Imagine the weight of leadership. Mm. And, and the Lord steps in. Mm. And you know when the 600,000 people saw that, they probably dropped those stones along with their jaws. Mm. Yeah. Because they know what that means, right? Yeah. I mean, if you just flip one page back, the reader would see this happen with Miriam and, and Aaron who mm. were uh, gossiping about their brother, Moses, who had a Cushite wife, right. which by the, wall, by the way, was not breaking the Old Testament law because if you go and read it, it actually says that you, they were not to intermarry with the Canaanites and all the people dwelling in that portion of the land. Mm-hmm. Moses married a Cushite woman, presumably because his last wife had died, right? But that was something that Miriam and Aaron just didn't like. It wasn't against the, lead, it wasn't against the word of God. It was a preferential thing. And it caused them to start to grumble against Moses. I mean, what's so special about Moses? Doesn't God speak to us the same way? And immediately, it says in verse four, (laughs) suddenly Yahweh said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, you three come out to the tent of meeting. That's it. That's what you get here now. Mm -hmm. 
dad is <laughs> dad is mad, right? Mm-hmm. Dad is mad because of what's coming out of your mouth, Miriam and, and Aaron. And I think that we would do well, uh, maybe one who's being counseled mm-hmm. or one a member who is in the church. It would do well to 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 learn from this and say, I, when I'm upset with the leadership or with my counselor or et cetera, let me take a step back and dissect what I'm really upset about. Yes. And it's probably the fact that I'm being confronted with the word of God very um, pointedly, very yeah. pointedly yeah. and very objectively, and I just don't like it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and I don't want to do it, and it's challenging for me, you know? And here's another thing, Mike and Bo, going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when we talked about that this is what Paul is speaking about is the congregation mm-hmm. uh, dealing with other members in the congregation, and they're going to have to admonish the unruly. Mm-hmm. And so what church members need to realize is they're going to get the same response from other church members when they begin to participate in what God has called them to do with other members. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to do what Paul says there in 1 Thessalonians 5, you better be ready because people are going to be upset with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because you're going to basically be calling out their sin and leading them to, to trust in God. But it's, it's absolutely amazing that they would want to go back to slavery. And I think yeah. so many people deal with that when they are being challenged to trust God, follow his word exactly, and they just say, I'd rather go back to being free, to when yeah. things aren't so hard, when there's no discipline and I'm not being taught and required and, and God's word and his law and his rules and his statutes aren't being in my face, being put in my face to, to follow them. And what you're forgetting, and that might be a counselee again, who's maybe working through addiction, et cetera. Mm-hmm. What you're forgetting is, is the absolute misery and death that was in that time of slavery. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is difficult, but it's leading to life. Yeah. yeah. And the death that was part of that slavery is, is only going to make you miserable once again. Mm-hmm. And it's going to lead to, to nowhere. You know? Well, I was just going to say, uh, kind of in addition to what Sam's saying right now, you know, one thing that we have to realize is what's in our heart. Like when, when sin gets exposed, God is glorified. Mm-hmm. So when we have a problem with our sin being exposed, when, when we have a problem with our church leaders bringing our sin to, to our attention or even another believer um, bringing our sin to our attention, you know, that, that's, again, going back to our own heart issues because what's happening in that point is the opportunity to repent. I mean, yes. somebody's bringing this to your attention. Hey, brother, I see that you're in sin. You know, turn away. And and the God-glorifying thing to do is to take that in, to say, to be thankful that God has provided somebody who loves me enough to tell tell me, you know, brother, you're going in the wrong direction right now. You need yeah. to turn around. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a great thing. And so, you know, this is, again, goes back to the measure of faith that we have because, you know, God's providing these other people in our lives to, to yeah. keep us on the, the path that we need to be on. That's so good. I want to read Proverbs 9, verse 8, and then we'll, we'll start to land this plane here. But Proverbs 9, verse 8 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give knowledge to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Make a righteous man know it, and he will increase his learning. I mean, this is the truth. You know, you want to, pastor, counselee, you want to know who you're dealing with? Give a stern, godly rebuke, and you'll know right away. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the word of God, right? Something that is, that is true, rooted in the text of scripture, that you've seen over and over and over again, and it's time for a stern rebuke. You're going to know who you're dealing with right there. You're going to know what type of sin level you've got going on in the heart of that person. Now, I want to go back to Numbers 14 and, and just briefly mention how this section ends because it, we have to. It's the end of the story, right? And we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul mentioned a lot of people died, right? Um, so 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Numbers 14 verses 11 through 38 are the rest of this story. Without reading all of it, you have an incredible 
display of God's righteous just, uh, judgment alongside God's amazing grace. You've got both in this passage. And so Moses intercedes for the people, essentially, uh, in verses 11 through uh, 19. And in, verse in verses 18 and 19, he does something that's astonishing and also very instructive for us as believers who should be intercessing, uh, in intercessory prayer or interceding for uh, the world, for politicians, for brothers and sisters in Christ, for lost people, etc. And notice what he does in verse 18. He declares the name of Yahweh and its meaning which was given to him in Exodus 34, verses six through seven. Here's what Moses says in, while he's in prayer. Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of, of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. And look at what verse 20 is. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Mm. And we'll stop right there because he says more than that. <laughs> but notice what Moses is doing is appealing to the nature of God. How do you get through tough times in your life? If you're a leader, how do you deal with this? If you're a counselor, how do you deal with uh, the muck and the mire that's gonna be slung at you? If you're a, a pastor, right? How do you counsel your congregation through issues? You have to know God. That's how you intercede for people. You have to appeal to who God is because that is the ultimate determiner of reality. <laughs> and that's the basis for all of his promises to us. And so notice, that's what Moses does in verse 18. And then he makes his request, pardon these people, even as you have done from Egypt until now. And you know what Yahweh does? He answers his prayer immediately, immediately. And that is in accordance with the first half of verse 18, which is Yahweh's, the meaning of Yahweh's name. But in the second half of verse 18, there's that transitional word, but... He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generations. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. And that's exactly what we see spelled out for us in verses 21 and following of chapter 14 of Numbers. Because there's still a price to pay for what has happened. And that price is that that generation of Israelites older than 20 years old is going to wander in the wilderness and ultimately die. And the second generation of Israelites, those who are 20 years and younger, are gonna be the ones who actually come into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And that's the stern, sober reality that we have to understand is could possibly happen here. That's why we read Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 19. See to it that none of you find within yourselves an evil, unbelieving heart right? Don't be fooled. Showing up to church doesn't mean you're a Christian. Don't be fooled. Just because you're going into a biblical counseling center doesn't mean you're working on your problems, right? Mm -hmm. There's real hard heart work that has to occur. And so final observations, Sam and Bo, you got anything to, to toss in there? I mean, I think what you said is, is right in verse 20. I mean, the Lord does pardon them, um, and that's the grace of God, um, you know, by the means of intercession through Moses. And at the same time, the consequences of their sin are grievous. Yeah. The rest of chapter 14 just lays out the consequences. And what happens, uh, which I think is the scariest uh, uh, of it, is that... Um, is that if you go down to uh, chapter 14, um, verse 42, mm -hmm. it says, do not go up for the Lord is not 
among you. Right. Mm-hmm. They try to go up and do what the Lord wanted them to do in the first place. And then we see there in verse 30, because of the consequences of their sin, verse 39, the people mourned greatly. Yeah. And so they grumbled. They faced the consequences. Yes, the Lord has pardoned them, but the consequences of their sin are great. The Lord has given them over to their ways, in a sense, and they're mourning greatly because of the consequences. And so uh, we should just go back to the very beginning and just say, let's just trust God (laughs) and not be discontent or complain at all. Yeah. And trust him and let him do the work in our lives. That's going to yield the best results. Amen. <laughs> Amen. I w- I w- Bo, if you've got nothing to add, I want to end it on that exact feeling right there and that concept. You got, you got a little observation to uh, toss in there? Just, well, I just want to encourage your listeners just to remember that, hey, you cannot out the grace of our Lord Amen. Jesus Christ. Um, but if you are in sin, you need to repent. Amen. So. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, gives us the reassurance that we're not alone in the midst of our struggles because we all do have these types of struggles. We all, if we're being honest, grumble. We all, if we're being honest, find ourselves struggling with discontentedness from time to time. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is maturing his people. He's doing it over time. We're not gonna get it all in one day. Right. But know this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Amen. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And at the, at the root of all of this is potentially unbelief and idolatry. When we're discontented, when we distrust God, when we are walking in in active disobedience, we are worshiping something other than the one who is worthy of our worship. And that is going to be the Christian struggle throughout all of life. But we have a God who is with us in the midst of it, a God who is sovereign over the, 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 the trials, the temptations, He is the one who is sovereign over all of it. Satan can only do what he is allowed to do. And God is faithful, like it says. If you find yourself in the darkness of sin, if you find yourself struggling with discontentedness, if you find yourself struggling with sexual immorality or any of the sins that are listed in the scriptures, know this, that nothing that is coming at you is only being experienced by you. And God is with you. He will also, along with it, provide an escape from it. So look unto Christ today. Guys, you have any final words before we sign out? I think what you just said, if you look down to verse 22, it says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Mm. And so that idolatry is the Lord then in his response is he's jealous for the souls of his people. Yes. To trust him and to follow him and to do as he has said. He's jealous for his church to be what he wants it to be. Um, And he's jealous. And so if you're a believer in Christ, I mean, that's a praise. That Mm -hmm. comforts my soul. Mm -hmm. It is not that the Lord wants something bad for me. It's that he wants what's best for me. Yes, Mm -hmm. He's jealous for me to be his Mm -hmm. in every area of my life. And so- That's true love. That's right true love. And that's, that's true love. And so this discipline, when this happens, if you're a true believer in Christ, what what a grace from God that He He He's jealous over our souls. Mm. And if He lets us just go from this, then we should be scared because He is jealous for the souls of His people. And so if we are given over to our ways and God says, Okay, you know, keep grumbling, here you go. Have your way. Um, that should scare us to whether or not we even the that we are God's people because the word right. says he disciplines those he loves. Yeah, Chastises says, every son he receives. Watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart. Right? Exactly. I mean, these are real things that we have to consider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bo, do you have any final words before we sign off? I do not. Thank you. All right. Well, we thank you all for listening to another episode of the Nehemiah Project podcast. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nehemiah Project podcast. 
For more resources about addiction recovery, suicide prevention, and overcoming other life-controlling issues, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, tnproject.org. If you or someone you love is struggling, don't hesitate to reach out to us by calling 985-205-3022.